This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. So let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, thank you for GYC. Thank you for the opportunity we have at the end of a year and the beginning of a new year to learn about you, to learn about your plan for our lives, to learn about um, just the amazing, amazing destiny that you have for each one of us. We've been exploring the destiny of Moses, the destiny that his adoptive parents in Egypt wanted for him and what God wanted for him and the decisions that he was facing. And today we're going to continue that this afternoon as we, as we look at his life and the decisions that he made. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be with each attendee here and those that will be listening later that we find God's destiny for us in our lives because you have a destiny for each one of us. We thank you. We ask your Holy Spirit to be present. In Jesus' name, amen. I figured out how my remote works too. It helps to turn it on. (laughs) So our topic uh, this afternoon for this seminar breakout is the wilderness training and the eternally burning bush. I don't know if it was quite eternal, but at least it was burning. We're going to focus on Moses and uh, relying on self and how God had to retrain him in the wilderness. We're going, to refer, we're going to talk a bit about the pursuit, although that's going to be more in the next session, and Moses in exile. And we're focusing on how God used the wilderness experience to retrain Moses for the greatest task that he could ever imagine. And I think that there's some good insights for us today as we move into that as well. The glories of ancient Egypt surrounded Moses throughout his upbringing. The first 12 years, as we mentioned, according to the spirit of prophecy, he spent at home with his parents, his biological parents. And his mother, Jochebed, raised him faithfully, teaching him the the, the principles of the Lord. Now, we have to remind ourselves sometimes that the scriptures, the written scriptures that we rely on today were not present then. Isn't that right? Because Moses was the first writer of the first five books of the Bible. And when he was growing up until the age, until those books were written, and we're going to talk about that specifically today in the seminar, those books did not exist yet. So where did, these, where did this teaching of the God of heaven come from? It came from oral tradition that was handed down and taught to the children generation by generation by generation. And by the way, even though we have the Bible today, that is still our obligation as parents, and it is still our obligation as a church today so that every generation can understand the plan of salvation, can understand God's destiny for his people, and not only for his people, but the people of the whole world that he died for. Moses was surrounded after the age of 12 until the age of 40, as he grew up, actually as he was instituted into the world of the palace. He grew up with the glories of Egypt. He was surrounded with the wealth of Egypt. And I don't think we quite understand the enormity of that wealth. I didn't get into the treasures of King Tut and tell the story of that discovery, but we have to remind ourselves that the tomb of King Tut, when it was discovered in 1922, was the smallest tomb in the Valley of the Kings. The tomb of Tutmosis III that I shared with you that the lights went out, uh, that is one of the larger tombs, but it's not the largest tomb. These tombs were filled with the treasures of Egypt. They were robbed in antiquity. They were filled with the treasures of Egypt. And Moses was surrounded by all of this. He was surrounded by incredible monuments, incredible architecture. And all of this had an influence on his mind. You see... No matter what situation we're in, that situation, that environment has an influence on our mind, a powerful influence. 
And we need to be cognizant of that and make wise decisions. Sometimes we can't help what situation we're in. Moses was destined by God to be in the situation in Egypt, wasn't he? God arranged for him to be rescued from the Nile River by the princess that is unnamed, but which we believe might have been Hatshepsut. So this is the situation. Let me read to you what Patriarchs and Prophets on page 248 says. Moses had been learning much that he must, what? Unlearn the influences that had surrounded him in Egypt, the love of his foster mother, his own high position as the king's grandson, the dissipation on every hand. You know what that means. He had servants to serve every want and every desire that he might have had. The refinement, the subtlety, and the mysticism of false religion, the splendor of idolatrous worship, as we discussed in our last hour together, the solemn grandeur of architecture and sculpture, all had left deep impressions upon his developing mind. Remember, he went there when he was 12 years of age and had molded to some extent his habits and character. We don't think about that sometimes when we think about Moses, but he was influenced by his environment. Great Controversy, page 555, says this, It is a law both of the intellect and the spiritual nature that by beholding, we become what? Changed. You know that quote. You've heard it many times. Do you know how many times Ellen White in her writings says this by beholding, we become changed. I just was interested in that the other day when I was working on this. According to what I found on the uh, database from the LNG White Estate, 348 times. Does that tell you? When somebody repeats something that many times, when a prophet repeats something that many times, do you think it has some importance for us? By beholding, we become changed. That means that what we behold, let's put it in vernacular today, what we look at, what we watch, what we surround ourselves with has a huge influence on who we become. We talked a bit about this earlier. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. It becomes assimilated to that which it is accustomed to love and reverence. The grace of God alone has power to exalt man. Left to himself, his course must inevitably be what? Downward. Now, that's a different concept from the concept of evolution, isn't it? It's downward, not upward, downward. We talked about that earlier. Moses came to a point in his life where he did something that he probably regretted for many years. We read about it in Exodus chapter 2, 11 through 15. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. Now, I don't know the circumstances of Moses. Uh, Ellen White writes that he witnessed about his faith in the palace and that he resisted many of the temptations that came to him there. So undoubtedly he knew who he was, unlike some of the Hollywood renditions that we have of his life. He knew who he was. He knew that he was um, a Hebrew. He had been raised by his mother until the age of 12, which is the age of adulthood in the Hebrew culture, in the biblical culture. But now... Perhaps he felt that with his military training, with his training as the future monarch of Egypt, with, as the prince of Egypt, maybe anger filled him in that moment, rage filled him as he saw this individual being mistreated. We don't know what went all through Moses' mind, but he did something that caused great consequences. He spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, one of his brothers, and he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, that's already a hint that he was doing something he probably shouldn't have been doing, right? When you have to look this way and that way to make sure no one's watching what you're about to do, it's already a problem. Be careful, okay? And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
And we skip a little bit forward. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. I do not believe that the Pharaoh that it's talking about here, based on our reconstruction that we've done so far, was Hatshepsut. I believe that perhaps it was Tutmosa III. Maybe. Imagine him growing up as a rival to this young, would-be king, Tutmosa III. He's growing up as a rival to this guy. His grandfather and his adopted mother want Moses to be the next king, but the actual king of Egypt, by title and right, is Tutmosa III, who bears all the titulary of Egypt. And so you have this conflict. Maybe one of the reasons Hatshepsut never allowed Tutmosa III to become true king and held the reins in her own hands when he did become of age was because Moses was always there. We don't know. We don't have the records of Egypt to know that, but it is interesting. Many scholars say, well, Hatshepsut simply, she relished power. She got used to having all the power. And when, Mo and when Tutmosa III came to age, she didn't want to get into, you know, she didn't want to relinquish it. Maybe there was some other things going on that we find from the biblical story that would make sense as well. We don't know. So, hit him in the sand. And what did this cause? This, somebody found out about it? Guess what? People find out about things, even when you look this way and that way. People will find out. And what happened? He, he flees from the face of Pharaoh and goes and dwells in the land of Midian. What a stark change for Moses. From the palace to the desert. From the lush, fertile, alluvial soil along the Nile River with its beautiful palm trees and its rushes and the sophistries that he had at every command and wish in the palace to the starkness of the desert. There's many discussions about where he went. I'm not going to get into a lot of details here. Let me just say that Midian was not only located in Saudi Arabia. This is a uh, misconception from uh, not understanding geography. Midian, actually, this is not even correct. I should change this. Midian extended, included the Sinai Peninsula, and Arabia included all of this area here. And eventually, when the Bible in the New Testament in Paul's time talks about Arabia in Galatians, uh, and many people think, oh, that Mount Sinai was in Arabia. Um, they take that passage from Galatians from Paul's time, and then they extrapolate it back to Moses' time, which is about 1,600 years earlier. Does geography and historical boundaries change with time? Sure they do. And they extrapolate that back, and they say, well, it, it says Arabia, it must be Saudi Arabia. And they go forward to the 20th century and, 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 and extrapolate from the 20th century. No, Arabia extended all the way through here, and the land of Midian probably included this area, but it also included the Sinai Peninsula. And I think that probably this is where Moses went. We don't know for sure. We don't know where Mount Sinai specifically is. I'll tell you that right now. And I think there's a reason for it. I don't think God wanted people to know. He didn't want the mountain to become the place of worship. He wanted him to be the God of worship. Okay? And we still love to make things and places worship rather than make the God of heaven worship. So Mount, this is, this is the Sinai. Let me tell you, it is a desolate place. It is a mountainous place. It is a desert wasteland. It has its own beauty, as you'll see from some of these images. It's gorgeous. I remember my first trip to the Sinai. I was a high school student. My father had an invitation to speak at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem for the International Organization for the Study of the Old Testament. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Anyway, international scholars from all over the world came, different, different uh, religious backgrounds and, and, and denominations, and he presented a paper there, and I tagged along as a student. He was, uh, made me pay for my flight, but he says, uh, you can stay in the hotel with me and I'll cover the meals, and it taught me some responsibility. I paid that flight off all summer working construction back home after I came back. But I remember taking pictures, I, I, lots of pictures. Back then it was slides, you know, that we took, uh, real, yeah, anyway, not digital photography. And, and I remember coming back afterwards, and when the, when the images were developed, some of you don't even know what that means, but anyway, 
when the images were developed, I, I was shocked to find so many trees in them. I think I took many of the pictures because the trees were so scarce. Every time there was one, I took a picture. And sometimes those trees had camels underneath them, and it was just fascinating. But it's, it's a desolate. Look at this. This is, this is wasteland. This is sand and, and, and just nothing there at all. Here's another tree picture. I didn't take that one. That came off the Internet. But um, this is where Moses spent how many years? Forty years. Do you think it might have ever crossed Moses' mind that he was wasting his time away in Midian? Do you think it ever crossed his mind, what is God's plan for me here? I was supposed to free the Israelites from Egypt, and now where am I at? I'm in this horrible, destitute place. I remember, let me tell you another memory. I was in the Sinai Peninsula on that trip in July, in the middle of the summer. It gets easily 110, 115, 120 degrees in the Sinai Peninsula in the summertime in July and August. I remember that we took with us some Quaker instant oatmeal for breakfast. And I remember the water bottle in the trunk, the plastic water bottle in the trunk. The water got so hot in the trunk that I could make Quaker instant oatmeal with it. It wasn't boiling, but I had to let it cool down a little bit before I, I ate it. Later when I went to Egypt, we brought Snickers bars with us to give out to the little kids in Egypt because they like candy bars. They melted, of course, in the trunk, so we'd hold it in front of the air conditioning so they would harden up a little bit again. This was a horrible situation. And by the way, I got, I've gotten used to, after the last 30 years of working in the Middle East, I've gotten used to drinking lukewarm water, but it's not an American thing. We like ice in our water, right? So this is, this is a, a, a place that Moses had to, had to deal with. Let me read to you Patriarchs and Prophets again. Moses was not prepared for his great work. Now, you would think, humanly speaking, that he was very well prepared. Because the future Egyptian king was destined to be a military leader of his people. He led his armies to battle, and we're going to talk about that in the next presentation. He was trained to be a great organizer. He was trained to be the individual who maintained order in the land of Egypt. He was to be the ruler of Egypt, after all. You'd think that Moses was perfectly well trained to take on his duties, but that's not what the spirit of prophecy says. He had yet to learn the same lesson of faith that Abraham and Jacob had been taught. Not to rely on human strength or wisdom, but upon the power of God for the fulfillment of his promises. How often do we rely on human strength to do things? in our lives. I speak for myself, it is far too often. But Moses was taught that from an Egyptian perspective and he needed to unlearn that. In the school of self-denial and hardship, do you think hardship is a curse? It's not always. Sometimes it is a blessing. It is through the crucial times of hardship that we have a choice to either draw closer to God or to move away from Him. And it, are, it is during the times of hardship that we come out in, in, in having an amazing experience many times with the Lord. In the school of self-denial and hardship, he was to learn patience, to temper his passions before he could govern wisely, but now... He must govern, he must learn to what? To obey. You see, when you're the future, future king of Egypt, you don't have to learn to obey. Really. I mean, you do this, and it happens. You do this, and it doesn't happen. You do this, and somebody lives. You do this, and the person doesn't live. But now he must retrain himself. And the Lord used the 40 years in the wilderness. It's interesting, if you look through the Bible... The great men of history often had these wilderness experiences. 
Paul, after his conversion experience on the Damascus Road, what does the Bible tell us? He spent three years in Arabia. Arabia. Same location. Now, does that mean we all have to become hermits and move to the desert? I don't think so. But what did Jesus do during his greatest trials? He spent entire nights with God in prayer with his Father, communing with him. We, we need that time away with God. Nature. Nature is a wonderful place where we can learn more about him. And it was in these mountains that he began to be able to commune and understand who God was. Now, I believe that God's timing is perfect. Doesn't it say in the Bible that when Jesus finally came into this world, it was in the fullness of time? It was just at the right time, just at the perfect time. And I don't think it was a coincidence that Moses ended up in the situation that he was in. And I don't think, I mean, he made a poor decision, but I think God can use poor decisions sometimes for his glory and for his honor as well. Thank you. Something happened here in the Sinai Peninsula about 100 years to 150 years before the time of Moses. We're not sure of the exact date. Some scholars say 1600 B.C., some say four, uh, 1500 B.C. or 1550. Could have been as, early, as, as late as 50 years before Moses was in the Sinai. Something happened that would dramatically revolutionize communication. And that was the invention of the alphabet. It happened in the Sinai Peninsula. And it was there that the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions, archaeologists have found the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions, that basically converted the Egyptian hieroglyphics that you see on the far column to your left, and they eventually morphed into our alphabet that you see on your right. Now, I want to ask you, I want you to look at that first one up there, that, that Egyptian head. Maybe I'll go to the next, the next slide here. There he is, the Egyptian apis bull. See that head? Look at what happened to it. Do you realize that when you write a capital A in English or in Spanish or in Portuguese or whatever other language that uses a Latin alphabet, do you realize that the A is an upside-down bull's head? The horns are the two prongs of the A, and the point of the A is the tip of the nose of the bull. He just was pointed upside down. Isn't that cool? Now, what, what's the big deal? Let me tell you something about learning Egyptian. It's not an easy thing. There are 1,500 signs like that head that you see there. At least that was true for the New Kingdom when Moses was learning it. Later on, by the Greco-Roman period, those hieroglyphics, or glyphs as we call them, as Egyptologists, expanded to over 10,000 signs. They were combined sometimes to spell things, or sometimes they could just mean something by themselves. Okay, let me go back a slide. I don't want to spend much time on this, but let me show you a couple of things that maybe would interest you. What does that look like over here? That little, that little squiggly line up there. Water, that's exactly what it is. Those are waves, those water. And look at how it, how it morphed into, not the letter W for water, okay? <laughs> Although it's tempting to say that, right? It turned into the letter M. Because in Arabic and in Hebrew and Canaanite before that, it, Mayim is water. Mayim and Arabic, Maya, that's water. So, and by the way, um, when, you say, uh, when you say water and you put the dual ending on it, uh, Mayim, this is the dual ending, it simply is the Mem or the M with a dual ending, and the dual ending means something that is not quantifiable. Can you imagine the Hebrews as they looked across the Mediterranean Sea? They saw all this water, or the Egyptians looking north across the Mediterranean, they saw all this water. This was something huge, this huge Mediterranean Sea that, that was unquantifiable, and so they gave it this dual ending. Sha'arayim in Hebrew means, I'm sorry, uh, Shemayim in, 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 in Hebrew means the heavens unquantifiable. We still can't quantify the heavens with our most powerful telescopes today. Okay? So I can go down this whole list. By the way, let me just mention this one. 
That's a head, a person's head with a beard. Did you know that that's what you were writing when you wrote the letter R? That this prong of the R over here is the neck, and this is the head, and this is the beard? Anyway, maybe you never made that connection before, and not that it's that important. What did the alphabet do? It, it, it simplified language from having to learn thousands of signs and a complex language that only a few scribes and a few literate people in Egypt were able to read. Of course, the kings were trained in, in this as well. It simplified the language. It was a revolution in language equivalent to the invention of the printing press and the invention of the internet, I believe, today. It revolutionized communication because it allowed now a simple number of 22 to 28 letters to be combined to make all kinds of sounds and words and ideas that enable philosophers to still do that today. The invention of the alphabet, powerful thing. Here's the Egyptian language. I mean, these are just a few of them. This is a loaf of bread over here, in case you're wondering, the sun, and you can recognize this as a bird, but what does that symbol actually mean? And, and, and look at here, you have the, the dung beetle. Oh, we'll talk about him some more. And I mean, every animal you can imagine, I mean, we've got lists and lists and lists of these. And can you imagine the meticulous nature? You have to be an artist in order to write Egyptian. Think about it. Each of these symbols is a piece of art. The people that put these on the walls, that carved them into walls, and then later painted them elaborately, they were artists, not only linguists. So Moses was exposed, perhaps, while he was during his exile in these 40 years in the wilderness, to a new system of writing. We don't know for certain. Ellen White doesn't tell us about that. The Bible doesn't mention it. But is it coincidence that this is when Ellen White does say he began to write? Under here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she writes, he wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote it during those 40 years in the wilderness. And what an incredible book the book of Genesis is. What an incredible book. I'd like to spend a little time with you to look at Genesis a little bit, to look at Genesis chapter 1 a little bit, and to just contrast the book of Genesis and the story of creation with the creation myths and the idea of creation, or maybe not creation, as we'll see, in ancient Egyptian mythology, and look at how Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through God, giving him a specific testimony of how it happened at the beginning, how that all took place. Let's look at that for a little bit. The Bible begins with a very simple sentence. And I spend every year, in the first semester with my Hebrew students, I've been doing it now for 18 years, I go through this chapter, chapter 1 in the book of Genesis with them. Before they even have learned much about Hebrew yet, we're already exegeting the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to think about that simple statement that begins Scripture. In that statement, you have philosophy's deepest questions answered in just those few simple words. Simple, but profound. You have the answer to the question of when. When did it all happen? When did it all begin? When did it all take place? Where do we come from and how did it happen? Who is the originator of what we have in this world around us? Who? Now that's a very interesting question because today people don't really ask that question very much anymore. They're more interested in the what and the how and the material substance of things and they ignore that behind that material substance is a creator. But the Bible doesn't seek to prove that there is a creator. From its very first sentence, it assumes that God exists and is the creator of all things. When? Who? God. How? He created. And we'll delve into that a little bit more. And the what? The heavens and the earth. And of course, then it goes into further detail in the verses that follow. 
It is a completely different concept than what we find in ancient Egypt, which is not really a story of creation, but it is a story of the creation of the gods. It is not so much a story of creation, but a story of, of uh, the creation of gods. And here what we have is, is the deification of everything, and then the, the traditions that try to explain where all of these things took place. We have also a difference because in the Bible, we have a very clear what? A very clear beginning. Because if it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what is the implication? Before that beginning, who existed? God. In other words, God was apart from his creation. He wasn't the creation. Unlike Egypt, which was pantheism, really. Unlike Hinduism, which believes in how many gods? 30 million gods, if you can even quantify how many there are. Everything is God, everything. In, in. Unlike these religions, and by the way, there's relationships between all of this. It goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. The Bible teaches a God that preexisted prior to creation and that created all things, reaffirmed in John chapter 1. Here you can see, we talked about this earlier, the cycle of the sun, the cycle of life of the sun moving through, uh, moving through uh, Newt and, and uh, Shu. Here's the, here's the heavens, okay, uh, that is holding up, um, or I'm sorry, the atmosphere, the moisture that is holding up uh, the heavens. And here is the earth down below, uh, Geb, the earth. But this whole idea of the sun and the whole idea of the cycle of life is very different. We believe that God created, that Jesus was the agent of creation. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? He was the agent of creation, and he is apart from creation. And Moses carefully wrote the first chapter of Genesis, not only as a true account of how God created things at the beginning, but also, I believe, in part as a polemic against the mythologies that were around in the ancient world at that time. What do I mean by a polemic? Let me explain that. A polemic is when you write something to counter something else, to, to offset against something else. I think there are many elements, and we're going to go through this here a little bit with you. So this cycle, here's another image from Egypt, uh, the cycle of the sun, the cycle of creation, the cycle of life. You know, the Bible teaches, and I covered, spent a lot of time on this last year at, at my seminar on biblical hermeneutics and, and biblical interpretation. The Bible teaches a linear trajectory through history. That there is a beginning, and through God's grace and through Jesus Christ, there will be an end to human suffering and death in this world. There will be a final end to all of that, where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more of all of the things that we take for granted in this world. There will be an end to all of that. And there's a linear progression. It's known as the plan of salvation that is moving through history in order to achieve that end. And we need to know where we are in that, in that, in that span of history. We need to know where we are in that time frame. The basic monotheistic religions have this linear concept of history. Judaism, of course, Christianity, and even Islam. There's a linear concept of history. In all the other world religions, that is not the case. There is a different idea. There is a cyclical idea. Death is the great God, as we saw in the previous lecture. Death is the great God that made men, that made man. Wow, death is a God? Yeah, because it was always part. There was no beginning to death. It always was. All right, let's go on. God created. What does the word create? The word in Hebrew is bara. And, and that's a powerful word because in the Bible, bara occurs many times, but it always and only has God as its subject. Only God has the capability of baraing something into existence. Now, we use the word create very loosely in our circles, in the English language anyway, don't we? We can create a beautiful painting. We can create havoc. We can do all kinds of things, right? We use the word create loosely. 
But in the Bible, the word that is translated create here, the word bara, is only and ever used with God as a subject because only God has the power to bara something into existence. Scholars have looked at this as a, the ability to create something out of nothing. What did God do at the beginning in Genesis? He spoke things into existence. I can't do that. God can do that. This is why David, after his terrible sin with Bathsheba in Psalm, in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, what does he say in that Psalm? He says, create in me a new heart, O Lord, and establish your spirit within me. Why? Because David knew that was something that he couldn't do. We can't do that for ourselves. We can will it and say, God, take this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Give me what you desire me to be. Only God can do that. We can't. We can make decisions in that trajectory, but God has the power only to do that. It's a powerful concept. And what does God make? I mean, what, is, what, is, uh, what does he make? The heavens and the earth. This is an all-encompassing all-encompassing statement. John 1 expands on it further that all things were made through him. All things were made through him. Now, this is a very different concept from ancient Egypt where the sun was worshipped as a deity. And by the way, sun worship continued all the way through human history. Doesn't it? Think about it for a moment. Here is Helios, the sun god in Roman and Greek mythology. And this is fascinating. You know, when we excavate ancient synagogues in Israel today, in Palestine, what do we find in those synagogues dating to the Byzantine period, to the 5th century BC, after, after Christianity has been legalized and after it has come into the Roman Empire and after we have all of this syncretism taking place between true and false in the Roman Empire, we have the same thing happening in Judaism. This is a floor from the Bet Alpha Synagogue in Israel. What is it? It is the Zodiac, that's right. This is a mosaic floor on the floor of the synagogue. First of all, prior to this time in Israel, what do the commandments say? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make a... Graven image. Israel did not use any human forms or even animal forms in its decorative art for centuries. We don't find it. But here we have Hebrew indicating the various elements of the zodiac. This is, I guess, Scorpio. I don't know much about astrology, to be honest with you. Um, I don't follow astrology, but there's a lion there. I'm guessing that's Leo the lion. And maybe some of you, but what is at the center here? What is at the center here? That's the sun god, Helios. You see her, her rays going off of her head there? That's Helios. Where does the halo come from? My wife is the art historian. She's not here right now. But uh, she can tell you a lot about this in Renaissance art. Um, look at the ray, their rays that are coming off of Christ's head, off of Mary's. These, this is where it all comes from. It comes from the worship of the sun god Helios. Here are some other interesting images from, from mainstream Catholicism. Christian sun worship. What does Genesis 1 say? Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, the stars also. Now let me ask you a question. Why doesn't Moses, when he's writing this, call these lights by their name? Why, does, why is the sun not mentioned here? Because in Hebrew, the word sun doesn't exist in this verse. In these verses, the, the, the word for sun in Hebrew is shemesh. 
He's not using the word Shemesh. Do you know why? Because in Canaanite mythology, which was also borrowing from the Egyptians, Shemesh was a god. The sun was a god. He does not want to confuse later generations and make them think that God is creating gods. That's what the Egyptians believe. The Egyptians believe that the gods created gods. The Romans, the Greeks, they believe that gods created gods. Okay, but Moses doesn't want... So he describes the functions of the sun and the moon in a material, functional way. Why? Because they were serving as a function divinely ordained by the God of heaven to do certain things. And inter interesting, what are they for? They're for seasons and for days and for years. You know that our, our days are, are measured by what? By the earth rotating on, our ac on the axis and, and, and by the sun. Well, it doesn't rise and set, does it? But we still say it does, doesn't it? You don't say to your, to your wonderful spouse, oh honey, isn't it beautiful how the earth is rotating on its axis and and, and is moving in such a direction that the sun is disappearing from the horizon. Is that how you refer to it when you're viewing a beautiful sunset? No. Why? Because we refer to it as, as how we see it. It doesn't mean that the, that the Jews and the Israelites and the Hebrews back then, when they, when they talked about sunsets, that they believed that the sun was actually sinking into the ocean. No, they didn't have that concept. Let's not put into their mouths things that we still do today. But all of these things took place. I've got to move on. So the greater light and the lesser light, not the sun and the moon, because the moon was a deity in Egypt. It was a deity in Babylon. It was a deity and worshipped throughout the generations of history. The sun was worshipped as well. No, these were not to be worshipped. They were to give light on the earth, to govern the seasons, to govern days and years. Notice that the week is not mentioned in this text. Do you know why? Because the week of seven days is not connected to any astronomical occurrence that takes place. We have been searching for the origin of the week in secular literature for centuries because secular literature rejects the Bible and the view of creation. The fact is, that God decided to end his creation on the sixth day and rest on the seventh day. He decided that. And he sanctified it. He rested. He did what? He sanctified it. And he set it aside as a day of worship. He decided that. It is not connected to any activity in the heavens. And uh, we still have that today. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you notice how in this last verse... Created, the word bara is used three times in one verse. Do you know what that says from a Hebrew perspective? If you mention something once, it's good enough because it's in the Bible. If you mention something three times, let me tell you something, you better pay attention. It's emphasis, emphasis, emphasis. Man was created in the image of God. God created him. In the image of God, he created him. That's just a repetition, isn't it? Male and female, he created them. Do you think God wants the world to know that he is the creator of human beings? And that we are created in his image. In Egyptian mythology, you know what the Egyptian mythology is. There's different ideas, actually, in Egypt. There's not a unified idea of how men came into existence. They really don't focus it on very much. But in one, one of, the, of the tales, supposedly, uh, we come from the tears of Ra. He's crying and somehow human beings come. It, it, there's no grand scheme of humans coming into existence for any particular reason. Okay? So this is something that's interesting. Um, in Mesopotamian mythology, 
Do you know why man was created? Mankind, and I use mankind in a generic sense for humanity. Forgive me if I'm not completely politically correct here all the time. I'm using the biblical terminology here. So, man, when, how was man created? Why was man created? The gods, the gods, the pantheon of gods in Mesopotamia got tired of doing work, of digging the canals and doing the work that needed to be done to maintain the earth. So they said, let's, let's, create, let's create human beings to do the work for us. And so humanity was created in a very, very strange and different way. A goddess was slaughtered. Her blood was mixed up with clay, which is interesting because the Bible talks a little bit about clay, but it's, you know, no goddess was, was slaughtered. Mixed up with clay. Then the, the pieces of the, of the goddess and the blood and the clay, seven pieces and seven pieces were placed in the womb goddess. And months later, she gave birth to seven men and seven women. This is the Enuma Elish in Mesopotamian history. Okay. But then there was a problem with humanity. They became so noisy upon the earth that the gods could not sleep at night. I'm serious. I read these texts with my students because you know what scholars out there are saying, historical critical scholars, they're saying, you know, the Bible borrowed these creation myths from the ancient cultures around them, from the Babylonians and, and, and from Egypt and, and kind of morphed it into something different. I'm sorry. If that's the case, it's something really different. Because when you read Genesis and the elevated nature of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I mean, if you read through that narrative, which I do with my students, and you look at this, these verses starting in verse 26, what is at the apex of creation is man, the creation of male and female. It is the apex. It is the finality. It is what everything else has been created for. Completely different than what you find in Mesopotamia and in Egypt. Now, so why did they send the flood? In the Mesopotamian accounts, because of the noise. They first tried pestilence, and then they tried famine, and finally they couldn't stand it anymore, and they sent a flood. And they didn't have the workers anymore, but at least they could sleep at night. My students read that, and I ask them to describe these accounts. They read it for a good 45 minutes, and then we have a discussion time afterwards, and I ask them to describe how these gods come across to them. And you know what they say? They use words like this, capricious, very human. And it's true. If you read ancient Egyptian mythology, that's what they are. They're, they have feelings. They, they become jealous. You read Greek mythology, they become jealous of each other. They kill each other over a woman. They steal a woman out of, you know, all these, all these weird things. Anyway, so different from what we have in the Bible. We are created in the image of God. There is no room for low self-esteem when you know that you are a daughter, a son, a princess, a prince of the God of the universe. You were created by him. And he has a destiny for you. Well, we can go on about some of these things. You know, it's very interesting well, I will get onto that in my last presentation. I was going to make a comment here, but I won't. The Sabbath day, some have called this the apex. Yes, it was, certainly. This was when mankind, man and woman, could spend that day at the end of creation week with their creator. Must have been a very incredible time. It was not existent in ancient Egypt. In fact, Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, that the slaves, the, the, the Israelite slaves, worked on the Sabbath. They were forced to and they lost, in a sense, their, their identity of Sabbath keeping in a major way. So all of these things are going through the mind of Moses as he's writing in the desert, in the mountains, surrounded by the majestic mountains that God has created. He's writing about these things. And God is revealing to him, I believe, how things actually happened so that his people who would soon come out of Egypt could understand who he was and the destiny that he had for them. 
But today, creation is a heavy, heavy issue under attack. It was in Moses' time through the Egyptian mythology and ideology, and it is today again. I want just to pause here for a moment with you. You have a few minutes left in this hour, about 10, to go over some of the implications of accepting a different worldview, an evolutionary worldview. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I have, by the way, I mentioned this before in the first lecture. I have several items on the GYC website that you can download, PDFs that you can download that goes into a lot of this material, publications that I've published that goes into a lot of this material before. And, and a, a, one that has been published by another Adventist scholar, Dr. William Shea. But I want to simply, and this article is, is on there as well. It's called In the Beginning. It was published some years ago in the Adventist Review. I want to just share with you some practical implications for Christian life and belief in what happens when we give up a literal idea of creation. And I think Moses was very aware of this as well as he came out of that Egyptian environment. First of all, the inspiration of the Bible. If you believe in progressive creation or theistic evolution, if you try to blend God with evolution, which I believe are two very opposite ideas that cannot be blended very easily at all, but many Christians have tried to do that. They are different worldviews, completely different systems of thinking. If you try to blend them, you have a problem with the inspiration of the Bible. Why? Because throughout Scripture, from Genesis chapter 1 until the very last book of Revelation, creation is a central theme that goes through all of Scripture. It's not an easy thing just to get rid of the first two chapters of Genesis or the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It is something that saturates all of Scripture. Jesus believed in creation. What do you do with Paul when he talks about the first Adam, as we talked about in the first lecture in the series, and Jesus is the second Adam. What do you do with that theology if you don't have creation? So the inspiration of Scripture, the inspiration of the apostles, Jesus as the creator, what happens to him? Anyway, we're going ahead. Um, the words of Christ, when he himself spoke in Luke eleven fifty 50, of Abel, the son of Adam, as an illustration, took for granted these first chapters of Genesis, we would have to reinterpret that. What about the character of God? What happens in an evolutionary perspective? You know what happens? It becomes the Egyptian worldview where death and life have always been from the beginning. Millions of years of species dying out and being overcome uh, through the process of, of the evolutionary process through through all the things that take place in the evolutionary process, um, in the competitive struggle for survival. What do you do with the character of God? What do you do when he states that the world was created in six days and that he rested on the seventh? What do you do with, with the finger of God that is writing the Ten Commandments and writes that there? Is he a liar? I talked some years ago as I was flying to a conference, a faith and science conference, that our church was sponsoring in the early part of uh, the 2000s, 2002 to 2004. And I was flying with a, a colleague of mine who now teaches at Southern Adventist University, a biologist, who had not always been an Adventist his whole life and became an Adventist after he was a scientist and became a creationist after he was an evolutionist. And he said to me, Michael, he says, we sat together on that flight, I remember, to Denver. He says, Michael, it comes to something very simple. He says, either God is a liar or he's telling the truth. It, it, it's as stark and black and white as that. Because if you, if you, if you get into too many other issues, it, it, it's, it's very clear throughout Scripture. There. So the character of God is real. The nature of humanity, we just talked about being created in the image of God. I won't go into that. Death before sin. What do you do about that? What do you do about the biblical explanation for the origin of sin and the origin of death? So death 
came into this world through what? Through sin, through the, through the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam is given the primary uh, responsibility for that, interestingly enough, by Paul in the New Testament. And Adam becomes a type for Christ. So what happens? What happens with this concept? Do you have millions and millions and millions and millions of years before in the evolutionary process man comes along? Death before sin? Then why would Jesus have to come into this world and die on the cross for our sins as a substitutionary death? There would be absolutely no reason for it. The very purpose of the gospel collapses if there is death before sin. We can talk about worship. Since we have a theme of the remnant today, let's talk about the remnant. Throughout history, God has maintained a remnant. As we will see in this seminar, focusing on the Exodus, I want you to think just for a moment of the millions of people or several hundred thousand, we don't know how many there actually were, but million, million and a half people that came out of the, out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. How many actually of that original group entered the land of Canaan? Well, maybe some of the children did, but the first generation of adults, they died during the 40 years. Caleb and Joshua, Moses didn't even go into the land of Canaan. He went to the true land of Canaan, right? After he passed away on Mount Nebo. But what do you do in that situation? God has a remnant. The recurring theme is attached throughout and it is attached particularly to this church through the three angels' messages, which, by the way, begins with the first angel's message, which proclaims God as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and the springs of living water. So what do you do with this? How do we as a people, according to Revelation 14:4, follow the Lamb wherever He goes and keep the commandments of God when the very commandments of God linked to the Sabbath are focusing on creation? So it's all tied together. The Bible is a woven, intricate, this is what makes it a miraculous book for us today. How do that many people writing over hundreds of years create a manuscript, a series of books that tie together in such an amazing way? The Bible does that. Finally, I just want to go to our identity as Seventh-day Adventists, believing in the Advent. We can already, of course, talk about the Sabbath. We can talk about marriage. We'll talk about that later. But what about the second coming, which we all look forward to? If you believe in progressive creation or theistic evolution, are you going to wait 600 million years for God to do it again the second time? What does it mean when he says, I will change you in the twinkling of an eye? You will move from mortality to immortality. What does Paul's messages mean? This is an instantaneous thing. What does it mean in the light of an evolutionary hypothesis? Is God going to take that much time again? It has been an incontrovertible fact that denominations who give up on a literal understanding of the first chapters of Genesis inevitably spiritualize away the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see that pattern through history. And today... Praise the Lord, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is one of the only denominations, one of the only movements in this 21st century that still maintains a belief in a literal six-day creation. Why? Because it is connected to everything else. And I can go through more detail. I don't have time for that today. So we have a, quest, we have a choice today to accept God's worldview or Egypt's worldview. Moses set out God's worldview as he was inspired during those 40 years as God worked on his heart and on his life and he changed into someone different. By the way, it could be argued and it recently has. There's a brand new book out. I need to mention this to you in closing. It was just published by Andrews University Press entitled The Genesis Creation Account and Its Reverberations in the Old Testament. I have an article in it. And many other scholars have written articles in it as well. It came out last month. I encourage you to get a, con a copy of this book. There's a popular version of this as well, published by Pacific Press for the layperson. This is the more scientific, more didactic, and 
All the footnotes and, and, and endnotes are here with all the references and everything. Angel Rodriguez, who for many years was the director of the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference, has an article, very powerful artic article, arguing that really the idea of evolution does not begin with Darwin or with scientific thinkers in the 1800s. He documents very carefully how it goes back ideologically all the way back to Egypt. And I think it is a very powerful article that he has there. So we conclude then in this section, Hebrews 11.25. This is what it says in that famous faith chapter about Moses. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather what? To suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. He would not be called the son of Ach or the son of Thoth or the son of Ra, but he chose to be called Moses. There's no theophoric element in Moses' name. You notice that? He's the son of. Who? The son of who? I want to end with this picture. When Moses appears and sees this burning bush, he asks God, Who shall I say sent me? I want to, just in closing here, and I know we're out of time, but just in the last few minutes here, I want to reflect with you a little bit. Moses sees this burning bush. God calls him to go back to Egypt after 40 years. He was a fugitive, really. God calls him to go back. He's retrained him. He's reworked. He calls him to go back. What does Moses do? He starts making excuses, doesn't he? First he says, who shall I say sent me? And, uh, and, then, and then he goes on and he begins to make excuses and God gives him signs. He has him throw down his staff and it becomes a serpent and he has him... Uh, put his hand in his cloak and it becomes leper. He, he has them do all these signs and Moses is making five times Moses is protesting to the point where it gets a little embarrassing for Moses. But are we any different today? How many times do we wake up and, and, and we, we think about what happened last year or yesterday that we could have done, that we should have done, that we might have done, that we, we really could have done differently and we we regret the things of the past. And then, and then we go through our day and we, 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 we think about the future and we think about that exam that's coming down the line or that job interview or, or, or we think about what we're going to have to face at work when we get to work and, and that coworker that just has given us a heart. Whatever it is, we, we focus on the future. We focus on the past. We're consumed by those things as Moses was in that moment in history. He was consumed by the past. He was probably wondering, how on earth am I going to face Pharaoh in the future? I'm slow of speech. I haven't spoken Egyptian for 40 years. I took German 25 years ago. I still speak it sometimes a little bit, but uh, my vocabulary is largely gone. If I'm there for a few weeks in Germany, it comes back slowly. But don't ask me to preach in German. I usually have a translator. If I have a manuscript, I can speak it, and I don't have much of an accent. But, uh, man, it leaves you. you. You snooze, you lose. That's what I tell my Hebrew students. you got to keep it up. Moses was not keeping it up for 40 years. And what happened? Well, God had a plan, of course. Aaron was there. This is the problem in life, friends. And this is the problem that Moses faced. When we are consumed by the past and consumed by the future, and we forget that God is in our very midst, in the present. He was right in front of Moses in that burnished bush. He was there. Moses is thinking about the past. He's thinking about the future. And God says, hey, what, I will be with you. I will go before you. He says it over and over again. Don't we do the same? Don't we do the same? May we always remember when God says to Moses, I am who I am, the I am is in our midst still today. He is the one who was, he is the one who will be, he is the I am because he has always been. Before the beginning of this world, he was. 
God, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, God is our Savior. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.